Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. Welcome to Teeth and Titanium episode one. This is our premiere episode. Pretty excited. My name is Wendell Mascarenas and I'm joined here by Oscar Dalmeo. Oscar, how's it going? Good. How have you been? I haven't talked to you in a little while. Yeah, it's been a little while. For those that are new to the show, I mean, everyone's new to the show. It's our first episode, but... We're new to the show. That's true. We're new to the show. We're trying to figure this out as we go along. Basically, this is kind of an informal podcast just to keep in touch with the oral surgery community and give people kind of an update as to what's going on. It is meant to be educational as well. So we hope you will learn something from this, uh, whether it's from our resident reminder section or from our journal club section, but more on that later. But first off, we just want to kind of introduce ourselves and why we're here. So my name is Wendell Mascarenas. I'm finishing up my last year residency at McGill. I have about two months left of the six-year program. And after I graduate, I'll be heading to Charlotte in North Carolina to do a one-year fellowship with Brian Farrell. My reason for wanting to do the podcast is I listen to a ton of podcasts. I find them extremely entertaining. And there doesn't exist really an oral surgery podcast in Canada. We're fortunate to be supported by the Canadian Association of Oral Maxillofacial Surgery. And I think this is going to be a great way to reach out to the members and just all oral surgery residents and staff, both in Canada and abroad. How about you, Oscar? Uh, Give everyone an introduction to yourself and kind of tell what you're hoping to accomplish with this podcast. So I think I think it's a good combination with with me and Wendell. So yeah, first of all, I'm Oscar Dalmeo. I think it's a good combination in the sense that you get two perspectives. I'm a little bit ahead in the sense that I just graduated oral surgery last July, so I'm six months or seven months out into private practice. So it gives a little bit of pers- different different perspective than Wendell, who's currently a resident and has this awesome fellowship lined up. So it gives you both perspectives, but it also, I'm still close enough that I still talk to all the current OMFS residents at UFT that I can still relate to what's going on. Other than that, I think the big talk that we're going to have right now or that we're going to talk about is the difference between residency life and private practice life that usually isn't completely different. But now with the COVID pandemic, there's probably some major differences that we're seeing in both our lives right now that we weren't really expecting. Yeah, for sure. And then going forward, uh, we're hoping to do this podcast once a month. So definitely subscribe and it's not going to be a huge listening commitment. And we'd love to hear from all of you, the listeners. So We'll establish an email address and we're going to post our email or contact all in the show notes uh, beneath this episode, as well as the articles that we talk about. We'll provide links to them so you can uh, check them out if you want. But right now, I think uh, we'll head into some current events. I don't know about you, Oscar, but I have like coronavirus fatigue. I'm not. Let me, I should probably clarify, I don't have fatigue because of coronavirus. <laughs> you got you to gotta be careful with what you're saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have fatigue discussing coronavirus because it's so prevalent. But I think it's important to talk about how this is affecting both hospitals and residencies and also how it's expe- uh, affecting people in private practice. So why don't you kick us off, Oscar? Tell us, what is life as an associate right now in a private practice setting? So I would say before I even get to that, I would start at just a little bit of the difference between residency and private practice, because you're right, like I'm pretty, I'm a pretty new grad, like fresh out. So I do have, I think, a pretty good perspective. I still talk to the current OMFS residents at UFT quite a bit. Honestly, residency was great. It was an awesome four years. I really enjoyed it. But it is nice to be out as well. It's a very different world once you do get out. Responsibility is all on yourself, but it's nice to have that freedom. So the first six months of work, 
there is a steep learning curve. A lot of stuff is more is more tailored to private practice than you're used to residency. I'm, I'm sure everyone has got a different residency experience, but as a chief resident at U of T, you do a lot of cutting. It's not really bread and butter stuff. More it's more the bigger surgeries. That's not really what private practice is like. But so it was it was a big transition, but it's super enjoyable. And so the first six months is what you expect. You get back to work. You start you start to really learn the ropes. And then this hit. And it really came out of nowhere, at least in, in Canada, it came out of nowhere. I know there was warnings and other, but for us, we were told by our governing body, the RCDSO on Sunday night, which was, I think the 15th of March saying that we were to suspend all non-emergent care. So we were only allowed to see emergencies and it was pretty much overnight. We got the email at 6 PM on Sunday, and then we had fully booked schedules on the Monday that we had to cancel. Since then, it's been, I think, a learning curve, just like every other dental professional in Ontario it has really been a learning curve in the sense that we get new guidelines updated probably weekly. None of them are super definitive. Now, um, you, do you get the feeling I get that the only thing I'm sure of is that nobody knows anything? That is 100% what it is right now. And like we'll get an email one week and the next week something changes. And it's not really to blame or to hold anybody accountable. It's just because no one really knows. So they try to update our guidelines as quickly as new information comes out. I was lucky enough or fortunate enough to join a big oral surgery group practice here in Ontario, Crescent Oral Surgery, and it's had a pretty big effect on our practice in the sense that we usually are nine surgeons strong over three offices, and we've had to close two offices just to kind of deal with only dealing with emergent care, and we've had to really let go of a lot of the staff until we can open back up. And so right now, from going working eight to nine surgeons between the three offices every day, we now only have our Toronto office open with one surgeon covering call and being at the office that day. And even with that, you're only working, let's say one in eight working days. And that day that you do work, you're seeing many less patients. You're, we're being capped at the number of patients we can see because there's a three hour room turnover time, which is the current guideline. We really are only seeing emergency care. So bleeding, infection. It's like going back to dental that's... school, one patient every three hours. It literally is, and all the efficiency that that kind of that you that you build up, and all the speed you built up over the first six months of leaving residency, you're going back now. You're going back to square one now because you are really seeing one patient per hour or three patients every three hours. And again, the PPE, I would say, as much as it is a blessing because it does keep us and our employees safe and the patients themselves, it is a lot harder and a lot more uncomfortable to be doing the work we do with the amount of PPE that we're wearing. You're keeping your N95 on, you're keeping your gown on, you're switching, you have a face shield over your, over your N95. So it really is, is a way more uncomfortable way of doing work, I would say. Yeah, definitely. Now, here's some real talk for you. You're an associate right now, that means you're under contract. Mm -hmm. So without getting into specifics about numbers or anything like that, you obviously have to have a salary plus billing percentage or something like that. Most people listening to this podcast will either, you know, own a practice or they'll be an associate or they might be a resident, so they're not sure how this works. But usually your traditional model, your associateship is going to be either your salary based or your, you know, get a set percentage of how much you bill or collect or whatever, sometimes a combination. So for you being an associate, technically, are you legally entitled to your salary? So I will say, and again, without getting into very specific details, just because that might get personal, um, <laughs> my, pra <laughs> my practice has been gone above and beyond for me. They have been really, really good. And, and if, especially when this has started, they reached out to me very quickly and said, if I ever need anything, or if I ever have any worries, they're there for me. And it didn't sound just like an open message. It was the truth. And I believe them for it. And so speaking on, on my contract, it, it is kind of like what you're saying, where there is like a guarantee and then a percentage basis, depending on what would be the higher of the two. 
to tell you the truth, even if this persisted longer and I wasn't able to meet either the percentage basis or the salary, I would never feel entitled to that salary part because, again, they have gone above and beyond for me. And this is something as cliche as it sounds is we are all in this together. Um, also, I feel like are, if you were to do something like demand your salary, yeah, sure, you, you'll legally get it this year and then you're shooting yourself in the foot for every year going forward. A hundred percent. And for a practice that I really enjoy working so much, why would I burn that bridge? Because again, yes, maybe I'm not getting exactly what, it, what I wanted, but we have to put yourselves in their shoes where they are not bringing in nearly the revenue. They're going from nine surgeons working a day to one, but their overhead doesn't really change. So if you ask me personally, would I ever feel entitled to that salary? No, I would never feel entitled to it. I agree. That brings me to my next point. Do you agree with me now is the best time to be an associate? Because putting aside the salary, you're not going to get your salary for most people. And I think we would all, we would both agree, as we just said, probably trying to collect your salary as an associate right now, not the best idea. But if you are an associate, yeah, you're at home. You might not be doing as much for you. You're only working one every eight, nine days. But you don't have to deal with any of the struggles that all the owners are dealing with, you know, their staff salary over ahead of their practice, regulations, or is their sterilization going to be enough when you get back? Do you have enough PPE? All these other headaches you have to deal with. So is, do you agree now is the best time to be an associate? I could not agree with you more on that statement. If you were to ask me three months ago or, or eight weeks ago, what, we're eight weeks into this quarantine for us or lockdown here in Canada, if you would ask me that question eight weeks ago, I would have said no. Like, Wendell, being an owner provides you privileges that you don't have as an associate, right? That you just... Yes, there is more responsibility, but you just you get more freedoms, you get more benefits by being an owner, you get more security. That being said, right now is the best time to be an associate, in my opinion. There does come some drawbacks in being an associate, and I can see it from both ways because both my parents are dentists who are practice owners, even though they're not in the oral surgery community, but they, they have their perspective as well. But yeah, the owners right now have that those expenses that aren't going to go away anytime soon. Their rent is still going to be there. Their staff overhead is still going to be there. Their loss in production is going to be there. I will say the only thing that comes a negative against about being an associate right now is that if you do, or if you are in a practice that that maybe is too large and really relied on efficiency and room turnover because it was so well oiled the machine. If these guidelines, these new guidelines don't change, it is going to hard to be going back to go back to that efficiency with the same number of surgeons just because the room turnover is not going to allow it. Your office is going to have to have 15, 20 ops for that to go back to normal. That would, I would say, be the only potential negative if things don't get a little bit less stringent with it. And also, won't you be the last work. person to return to work, probably? Exactly. Again, my office has been really fair in the sense that every surgeon is on the schedule one in eight to one in nine days. There's no preference for partners right now. We're all getting the same amount of work. But yes, it's, it's something you have to think about going, going in the future when we do open up. Likely they will get preference and they should get preference, right? It is their office. Yeah. I mean, for us in a residency point of view, residency is pretty much ground to a halt. It's emergencies only. It's trauma, infection, cancer. That's pretty much all we're doing. That's what I was going to ask you. Do you feel, because you're in your chief year now, right? And, and it's an important year in a lot of us. Do you feel you're able to incur enough surgical experience operating the, the fun, the cool cases, the big cases that we all want to do coming into the end of a residency over the first eight months of your last year? So I got lucky that my surgical login experience was enough that when this hit, I feel comfortable graduating. That being said, you know, you just finished residency, you know, the end last three months, you plan all your best cases yeah. when you're the most yeah. comfortable. So I have 
total joint replacements lined up. I have all my anterior implant cases, all my aesthetic implant cases, they're all lined up. All yeah. complex bone grafts, just everything I wanted to do right at the end. And you got tons of OR time. So I definitely lost out in the sense that, you know, for example, I won't have as much experience with anterior implants, total joint replacement with orthognathic, for example, that I would have had. But yeah. luckily, because this really started taking place in March and June, I was planning on taking off for uh, studying for a Royal College exam. I only lost about two months of residency. If you look yeah, at other yeah. years, if this had happened, for example, in September, October, November of last year, oh, it would have that's, been really, really that's bad. Crushing. Yeah, crushing. Because that's, that's, that's when you get all your experience. That's, that's when you really peak as a chief. I'd say it's around November, December of your last year. So luckily, that's been fine. From an employment point of view, best time to be a resident or a fellow, guaranteed income, guaranteed salary. Nothing it, has changed for us. I'm making more money funny, than you. It, it, I was going to say, it's funny that you say that. And I, and I said this and I was talking to my, all my dental friends other than you and then my parents as well. It's like we go to school or I go to school for 16 pretty much years. The whole time you're working like crazy hours, you get resident salary. The first year that you can start making money, a pandemic hits. Yeah. I, I know it's a first world problem, but trust me, it's the best time to be a resident or a fellow is right now, like you said. Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the good things that uh, is guaranteed income. So it is going to affect residency going forward. I mean, I know for the senior below me, for junior residents and off service, it's taking a huge toll. So not the best time to be a resident either, especially since you have to go to the hospital. For anyone that downplays this pandemic for any reason, just go visit an ER. As soon as you go to the ER, once you realize this is a big deal, it's like walking to a war zone. It's crazy. I think you're also lucky, maybe like you, you kind of let the guys know or the, the listeners know at the beginning of this, you're also lucky in that you do have a fellowship lined up. Yeah, exactly. So any minor, let's say minor deficiencies that you felt like you might leave with, you're going to more than deal with in that year of fellowship that you have coming up anyway. Yeah, exactly. For sure. Obviously, this has affected a lot of other current events going on. So with the CAOMS annual meeting was canceled, as we know, pretty much every kind of educational conference meeting has been canceled. Everything switching over to webinars, Zoom meetings. Tons of continuing education going on right now. My question for you is, I, I feel like we're not going to be able to go back after this. And what I mean by that is, from a residency point of view, even from a private practice point of view, what is the point now of seeing anyone for a follow-up in your office, for example, after extractions? Can this just be a telephone call from now on? Honestly, I don't think we go back to the normal or what we thought was normal ever again. It'll slowly transition that we're going we're gonna to gradually be seeing patients again on a more normal basis, but never to the... The luxury that we used to have where like a patient had, oh, this little stitch is bothering me or any minor thing patients were brought in because it was a service industry. I think that's going to change dramatically. And yes, you'll still see for follow-ups on bigger cases and you're still going to see patients for follow-up if you want to see them. But a lot of times these are going to be more on a case-by-case basis. You're not going to just book everyone. I want to see all my eights two weeks post-op. That's just not going to happen anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I think from a residency point of view, they might have just creating a new column, which is like telehealth follow-ups. Right now we're doing all our follow-ups over the phone unless they absolutely need to be seen. And I mean, these people are surviving. The problem is all these infections that are brewing are probably going to start popping up soon. And then we'll really know if if this was a good idea or not. But for now, it seems to be fine. I think that's another good, good point that you do bring up. And I think that will, if this really does last two, three, four months longer for, in terms of the dentistry, oral surgery department area here in, in Canada and in Ontario and Montreal, is that right now we are triaging a lot. Because let's say I work on Wednesday, the day before I am the on-call guy at home taking all the calls that come in and I screen all the patients for the next day's work. And that lets us triage most patients saying, yes, you know what, you need to come in or you know what, let's give a course of antibiotics or let's see if pain medications gets you under control and let's try to delay this. But like you said, 
let's see in three to four months if these infections that we were sitting on a little bit because we couldn't see them in person don't end up blowing up and, and, and require more work than they did. What if we would have seen them earlier? Yeah. And I think that's one of the unintended consequences is the prescription level of antibiotics and painkillers right now is probably through the roof. For sure. So anyone For that sure. comes in that's with a resistant infection is just going to be an absolute disaster, but it's not something we can really do much about. Yep. All right, let's move on to our next section. This is the resident reminder section. Here we like to talk about a specific topic each episode and teach it in an educational manner. We want this podcast to be educational. This is mostly meant for junior residents, but also applies to staff, recent graduates, senior residents. I think everyone's gonna benefit from this just kind of as a reminder of things you used to know or maybe you still know. So this episode, we wanted to talk about subcondylar fractures and indications for open reduction. Now, this seems to be one of those topics that's always you know, discussed as being super controversial and you need these guidelines and, oh, you should treat them all closed. Oh, you should open all of them. I don't know about you. To me, this is pretty straightforward. The first thing every resident needs to know and needs to read is the famous Zide and Kent article from, it's actually from 1983. Yeah, it's not new. It's not new. <laughs> and it just goes to, nothing's changed. You'll see, yeah. And a lot of this research, not much has changed. So, you know, Zide and Kent, this famous article Everyone, every resident has to memorize it, and it pretty much talks about the four absolute indications for open reduction and then the multitude of relative indications. So just to jump into it as a review, the four absolute indications, number one, displacement of the fracture into the middle cranial fossa. I think that's a no-brainer. You have a piece mm-hmm. of the condyle that's in the brain. Number two, impossibility of obtaining adequate occlusion by closed reduction. So that makes a lot of logical sense. You can't yeah. wire them shut. You can't get them into the pre-op occlusion because there's yeah. an interference with the fractured segment. Number three, lateral extracapsular displacement of the condyle. This is one that most junior residents say and have no idea what it means, but it's actually pretty obvious. It's just the fractured segment is displaced laterally outside <laughs> the TMJ capsule. Yeah. So I, I think that makes sense. And number four, invasion by a foreign body, i.e. a gunshot wound or anything that's foreign uh, object in the joint space. So those are the four absolute indications. So this is what I don't get, Oscar, from my point of view. You have your four absolute indications. They all make sense. And then they have this long list of relative indications. Everyone tries to give their two cents on whether it's a relative indication, whether they open or whether they close it. Why does this matter? It, it, to me, if it's the four absolute indications, you have to do it. If it's not one of those four, you look at the fracture segment. If you can get two screws on it, you're good. You can plate it and open it. If you can't, you don't do it. Am, am I missing something here? What do you think? So... When I was a resident, that's like, because I'm a pretty like black and white kind of guy too. That's what I, I didn't really understand. And, and I think actually, I went to a pretty TMJ heavy program. So a lot of our staff were really comfortable opening up any condor fracture because we did it so much. We were in the area so so often. So it was pretty made pretty cut and dry to me by my chief resident. It's the, yeah, if it's one of these four, great, we have to go in. There's a no question. That's a no brainer. And then the second one was, yeah, it wasn't really nitpicking. It was, if it's not one of these four, if we open this, can we get a better occlusion? Can we get a proper reduction by putting plates on it? And if the answer was yes, we were opening it up. That was ours. Kind of like it sounds like what your, your mentality is, that is in McGill as well. If you opened it up, did you place the patient in MMF afterwards? So we didn't place, we did not usually place the patient in MMF afterwards. If we did, we might have put, like, and if we did, it wasn't tight MMF. It would have been a couple like MMF screws with, with heavy elastics, if anything, but never in solid MMF, no. Yeah, because I think... If you open the condyle and plate it and then put the patient in wired MMF, what was the point? What was the point? Yeah. There is none, in my opinion. I agree. I, I think you're yeah. getting the worst of both aspects. Yeah. So just a review for the junior residents. The argument for a close reduction is you have good long-term outcomes that have been shown. 
just from wiring uh, the patient shut in MMF, you know, from four to six weeks. Some people transition from wired MMF to heavy elastics after two weeks or four weeks. I got a question for you on that. Do you guys do that? Is that something that you guys did? So we usually transition them to heavy elastics at around four weeks. Okay. So yeah. So we were, we were probably a little bit earlier. We would say three weeks on average, we were transitioning them to heavy elastics. But yeah, it's relatively the same, I guess. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to be honest with you. Here at McGill, we almost never wire them shut. Yeah. It's, yep. it's very, very rare. Maybe it's similar to you. When, I think when you're in residency, it's really tough because you have to get comfortable opening. You have to do these approaches to the mandible, right? You have to do your subcondylar yep. approaches, which is going to be your risen approach, your retromandibular approach, your submandibular approach. And yep. if you don't get comfortable with them in residency or you don't have staff that are comfortable with them, you're never going to do it. And therefore, you're never going to be comfortable doing it. Like could not agree with you more on that. And then I guess that kind of, I mean, we're divulging a little bit and we're digressing to other areas, but that even makes a difference of alone. Yeah, I've, I've only been out again six to seven months and that's already a difference of what you see, what you will treat in residency, what you, what you will treat as a private practice on-call surgeon. Well, this is what I was going to say. Now you as a private practice on-call surgeon, let me guess, you are probably doing close reduction way more. Yeah. And so again, I am only on, I would say courtesy call, right? I'm on shared call because I am so new. So I don't have my own OR time. I have assist privileges. And if one of the other surgeons with the partners goes in, I will go in with them. I do think that our practice is a little bit different than the average Ontario oral surgery practice because we are affiliated with a training program, right? So some of the residents come in assist our, our main partners two to three times a month. They have quite a bit of OR time. They do a lot of orthognathic. So they still open up a lot, but if you were to digress from our my practice, the practice that I currently work at, there is a lot more that's closed in the in the community than it is in residency. And and you can't necessarily just blame the surgeon taking call. You have to realize that when you take when you take call without being in an academic program, you're taking call on your own. So if you're going to do a fracture, you're either doing it with a nurse or one a surgical assistant. You got one of your other oral surgery friends who who can come in with you. But usually it's with the nurse. So you don't have that junior resident retracting so that you can see everything. You don't have someone trying to help you get the patient to MF. So it's not as cut and dry as you would think, or it's like, oh, look at the community guys are not doing the, the, open, the open cases. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's just a very different environment. Plus, if you're doing close reduction, you can do it in your prior practice. A hundred percent. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So, so there is a difference. Sometimes I think we're a little bit too harsh as residents to judge the private practice guys until you get there and then you're like, oh, okay, I make now that's now I see why they asked if we can take care of this case or that makes sense because we've all had those really tough cases where it takes the attending, a chief resident, a senior resident and a junior and we still struggle. Yeah. Imagine doing that on your own outside with a nurse. Yeah, definitely. Right? Residency is the easiest time to do anything, especially as a resident anything. because you're not even liable. 100%. So, right? so, you, so obviously we try and convince every staff to open every single one because they're liable and we know we have yep. them watching over yep. our shoulder as backup. So yep. that's why it definitely makes us a lot easier. That's a good point that you bring up. So for the residents, just approaches to the, the condo, because it's actually funny, this article, it's always quoted for its absolute and relative indications, but it actually talks about which approach you should use for depending on where the condo is. It's something kind of intuitive, but basically if you have a condylar neck fracture or, or kind of a higher subcondylar fracture, you're probably gonna do a retromandibular approach. Now, this can be retroparotid or it can be transparotid. For us, we usually go transparotid because you just get better access. And if you're comfortable working in that region, you're comfortable with the facial nerve. And so I know I was reading this, like the article, like kind of like you were too, just to review myself before we started talking about it. And yeah, it does talk about different approaches. But I will say that 
80% of our cases or, or 85, even higher, we were doing retromandibular approaches. And would you like, usually go retroprodded or transprodded? We would always, I would say out of that 95% of the cases in staff, we would go transprodded. Okay. And like you said, if you know what you're doing, it's the, the quickest, I think the most direct access right onto the condom. So why would someone go transprodded versus retroprodded? Just give, give it, us a review. So for, for us, it was more, if you're comfortable kind of identifying the facial nerve that goes through the parotid, all our staff were. And so that's why we always did it because we felt we had better exposure. We just had a more direct access, quicker access. Never really out of all the cases that, that I was a part of. I'm not saying that I was the operator, but of all that I was part of, even as a junior resident, didn't see anyone with any facial nerve, any injuries. And then if you're not, right, if you don't really want to dissect it out or you don't feel comfortable, that's where the retroparotid does come into play, right? It's a more safe technique in that sense. But I think if you know your anatomy, and I don't want to speak about anything else, I think the transparotid for us was, was the standard of choice. Yeah, I could say a similar, similar experience here. I think once you've done it transparotid and then you've done it retroparotid, you realize how much easier it is oh. to fixate the segment and access the segment once you do a transparotid. Now, the problem is you have to be comfortable going through the parotid capsule through the parotid yeah. itself. Yeah. Would you say that you mainly did retromandibular as well, or, or were you using more of the other techniques as well? No, I'd say, yeah, at least 90% are retromandibular. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and okay. of those, I'd say 90% is probably, trans ah, maybe 80% yeah. is probably transparotic. Yeah, so uh, very similar. Yeah, I think things become more black and white if you're comfortable. As you said, it's, it's a lot different in private practice, or a lot of it's based on how you're trained. You know, some places they don't do as much TMJ surgery. Like Toronto is obviously known for doing a ton of TMJ surgery, but you can't really fault someone that went to a program where maybe they weren't accessing the condyle as much for joint replacements. So they're not as mm -hmm. comfortable with these approaches. But I think once you're comfortable, you're going to realize retro mandibular transparent is the way to go pretty much for every hey, subcondylar fracture. You know what? As we both say it, I couldn't agree like more on what we're saying, but I also would say that if whatever you are comfortable with and that works in your hands... I don't want to put any of that down. So if you're, if you tell me that, you know what, in my hands, I can do a retromandibular, not a transparotid, retroparotid approach just as quickly, and you're comfortable with it, and that's what you've been trained, then might as well go ahead and do it, right? I'm not saying that necessarily mine or yours, which is the same, is the best technique, but that's the way I was trained. It sounds like you were, and it's really efficient. So in my opinion, that's why it's the best technique for me. Yeah. Let's move on now to our next section. This is called Journal Club. So each episode, we want to take one article from the most recent issue of JOMS and discuss what we think about it. Now, we're not going to kind of go over right now exactly how to do a critical <laughs> appraisal. Probably a lot of people are, uh, are thinking right now, oh God, I hated Journal Club back in the day. I don't want to go back to that. But no, this is going to be more of a discussion on the journal. We're doing all the hard work for you you luckily just have to kind of pay attention and listen on. So for this episode of Journal Club, we picked a article called Single Point Fixation for Non-Comminuted Zygomatico-Maxillary Complex Fractures, a 20-Year Experience. First thing I'm going to say is anytime you put a blank number of year experience and it's a big number, it's instant like you want to read that article. Am I wrong in that? Yeah. I saw, I yeah, saw like, no. Yeah. You see a 20-year, you see a 20-year experience or 500 patient group and you're like i need to read this like when i see a 20-year experience of a study it's like you started this when i was 10 years old right this is a legit article <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> right? exactly that's another way of thinking of it yeah so that's that's one thing it has going for it right away it's by shokri et al and one thing i noticed is i always like to see you know who are the authors where are they from kind of a diverse group of authors here they're from a lot of from pennsylvania arizona california 
The attending physician is Dr. Dusich from Fort Worth, Texas. But one thing I noticed that they're all pretty much residents or staff in ENT. Now, call me biased, but as soon as I see an article is by ENT or plastics, it's like instant turnoff. I don't know about you. I would say that for sure, especially if we're dealing with trauma. But it's irrational because it is, we, but we might have attended programs where ENT either doesn't do trauma or is, or is very poor in trauma. But a lot of places in the States, ENT is on a one and three call, one and two call. A lot of yep. places, they are like the experts in facial trauma. I think it's a stereotype that I can't get out of my head. And like you said, it's because where I've trained, right? And, and ENT doesn't take almost any trauma call here. So for me to be like, what are you talking about? You probably haven't seen this. But yeah, there's programs in the States. Like when we went to the, a lot of us residents here in Canada go to that AO trauma course, three quarters of the people are ENT yeah. residents, right? Tons of ENT residents, tons of ENT surgeons teaching the AO trauma courses. Yeah. So definitely an inherent bias on yeah. my part that yeah. I probably need to eliminate. But for now, I, I still judge them when they're ENT or plastics. I agree. <laughs> so just to review the article, it was published in May of 2020, obviously this month. And it was a retrospective study. So right away, you have to think low-level evidence. But people are big to jump on the evidence pyramid and myself included in how, oh, this is low-level, this is low-level. The reality is it's like 95% of what is published is low-level evidence. Yep. To yep. do you know, your top-of-the-pyramid randomized double-blinded control study or like a meta-analysis, it just doesn't exist in our profession when surgery is involved because it's hard to blind the patients and the surgeons. It's not ethical, like most well, of that's the time. The, that's, the, that's the biggest issue. Like, How do you blind on a surgical outcome that may potentially be affected by this, right? Like getting ethics approval, at least for us, it would be impossible to do that. Yeah, exactly. So they looked at ZMC fractures and their basic approach was to do only fix the ZM buttress. So a review for the junior residents out there, your ZMC complex fracture is going to involve four different sutures, your zygomatico-frontal suture, your zygomatico-sphenoid suture, your zygomatico-temporal suture, and your zygomatico-maxillary suture. And Ellis actually published, you know, great guidelines in like the classic article everyone quotes is, you know, his algorithm, which is should open up ZM. This is for non-comminuted ZMC fractures. If it's comminuted, it's a totally different issue. So we're only talking about non-comminuted, so single body tetrapod fractures. And he said, you know, explore ZM. If you can reduce it and you fixate it and it's stable, then you're done. Mm-hmm. If you still need to do more, you can go to uh, ZF. If you need to do more, yeah. you can go to the infraorbital area. So basically their methods was they did an intraoral vestibular incision. They placed a single 2.0 millimeter mini plate at the ZM. They would then palpate the infraorbital rim and they would use a plastic ruler, I guess, plus minus their palpation to determine if it was a step off greater or equal to two millimeters. If they had a step off greater or equal to two millimeters, then they would open and plate. They didn't say how they opened there, but they would plate no. the infraorbital rim as well. And then they palpate ZF for mobility. And then they would do a force duction test at the end to make sure there was no entrapment. Yep. So right away talking about their methods, I mean, intraoral vestibular access for ZM, that's standard. Your mini plate standard. Now, this is where this kind of varied for me. So palpating the infraorbital rim, palpating the ZF for mobility. I don't know about you and your experience, but I don't know. We don't really do this. I mean, sure, you can palpate it, but most of the time the patient's incredibly swollen. You know, it's a recent trauma. Can you really rely on palpation only? These are like tiny sutures and minute step-offs. My question is why not just base things more on your CT scan? A lot of times you can have a minimally displaced or you know, mildly displaced fracture. So you feel like if you reduce it, like, is this something you do where you would just palpate the infraorbital rim and then palpate the ZF? To be honest, th- this article, 
we, we both read it and we both critically appraised it. And like we said, we're not going to get into the analytics of the epidemiology and all that about it. But yeah, I, I didn't necessarily find it the most useful article. I, I'm going to be honest with that. And it's no disrespect to the authors or anything like that. But yeah, I'm going to go along the same lines as you. The first thing that we do after you assess the patient or the junior resident assess the patient, you look at the CT and you're looking at how displaced things are. So you already have a rough idea. I'm not saying that's the, the be all and end all, but you have a rough idea on what your alignment looks like already before you even go into surgery. And I'm assuming everyone's getting CT scans on these patients. So that's yeah, not like, please, oh, we're biased. Please don't because, come at us yeah, with your Waters yeah, view, if, Towns view, submental exactly. vertex view. Exactly. If that's the case, I don't even really want to talk to you about that, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah. So Unless once, you have a 20-year experience. Yeah. It, 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 and then, then you know what? Then all the power to you. <laughs> <laughs> but so exactly. So like if, if I saw it on a scan and then we played the ZM and I think things looked lined up, Am I really going to be with my finger and a ruler be able to tell if there's a two millimeter infraorbital step or that things aren't perfectly lined up? Uh, that's kind of hard to believe. Yeah, I'm probably going to palpate, but like to, to be that, that picky and that, oh, two millimeter step, I'm now going to plate the infraorbital rim or I'm going to open the ZF. I think if you're not using other criteria, which maybe they didn't say, you know what, we looked at our CTs and we knew that there was a step already, then I think that's a little bit of a reach. The other issue that I have with this is kind of what you just stated is that is that what Ellis already said, and I think most of us have practiced in our training programs, and that's why I don't think this provides necessarily with great new or, or groundbreaking information, is that, yeah, most of us will open that ZN because it's such an easy approach for us to do that you probably let your junior residents do right off the bat. You line up that ZM, and then if everything else was already non-displaced, it's likely going to stay non-displaced. And if it's stable, we're pretty much all done, right? Yeah. So all they're saying is things that most of us have been practicing already. That's the only real issue I had with this article is that nothing new was really presented. It's things that most people have been practicing already. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and for people wondering, if you have a non-displaced fracture and you're plating, you're pretty much putting just one mini plate there because, you know, muscle mastication, you can have some some forces on the on the, the fracture segment that might cause like a little bit of a non-union or kind of a defect later on. So, I mean, heading into the results, it was 20 years, which is impressive. They had 211 uh, patients included, which is also very impressive. Mm -hmm. Some cool things. Their mean operating time, 35 minutes. Pretty impressive. Now, yeah. keep in mind, you're just doing a vestibular approach, plating, and then you're just yeah. like palpating. So if you think about it, it shouldn't take long. But still, 35 minutes, I thought that was pretty impressive. Yep. Yep. Like that's, that's for sure. That's good. Pretty much after they plated the ZM. 44 patients still had a step off greater or equal than two millimeters, so they plated the rim. Also, they had five patients where they would palpate ZF and sense mobility or a step off or something, so then they would plate ZF. So overall, they had a 76.8% rate of single point fixation, which is pretty impressive because 75% of the time, you're, you're just plating ZM, single point fixation, yep. which is very effective operating room time, very easy to do. Yeah. So yep. that's great. I will say from my experience, we tend to focus more on ZF because we like to do like the upper bluff, expose ZF. You can look at yeah. ZS, which as we know was like the most reliable suture mm -hmm. line to know if you're well reduced. So mm -hmm. I will say we're more prone to opening ZF as well and looking at ZF yeah. and ZM. So I don't think our rate at our institution would be the same as far as single point fixation. But that being said, I think a lot depends on what you see on the CT scan first. Yeah, exactly. Because... Are you opening ZF every time or are you opening a ZF because you've seen it on the scan that, you know what, that looks a little bit displaced? Yeah, and, exactly. And, and they are pretty much saying that they are really dealing with like only completely non-comminuted. So it sounds like they already knew that there was pretty much no, no displacement on ZF. So I think that's a little bit different. Yeah, for sure. 
So overall, I mean, I, I like the article in the sense that it reaffirmed what we already know. What we yeah. already know. Good, good sample size. Good twenty-year experience. I think the negatives are didn't really present anything new. And the biggest problem with all every single ZMC article, including Ellis's, why do you do a ZMC repair? You do it for function because they can't open because the coronoid's hitting. Yeah. And you do it for aesthetics. Aesthetics. So yeah. unless you're doing a study that's going to say, oh, does single point fixation lead to as good of an aesthetic and functional result as multiple point fixation? It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything that they played ZM only and it was fine because the aesthetics could be terrible. The, the zygoma could be rotated completely, but ZM looks great and their single yep. plate function great and they never had any issues, but the aesthetic result may be terrible. So the problem is it's such a subjective endpoint, which is what you really care about, which is the aesthetics of the zygoma and the malar prominence, which none of these studies look at. And to tell you the truth, and maybe this was where being a resident makes you more aware of those things. That's actually, I didn't even think of that. I didn't really think of like, the, what is the end result or why are you treating any ZMC fracture? Like you said, there really are only two reasons. And so if this treatment is acceptable, but is giving you worse results on one of those two outcomes that you're trying to obtain, then it's useless. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when it comes yeah. to function, obviously you can have like an orbital floor component and you're yeah. reducing that and things like that. But my, my main thing is that unless you're assessing function, I mean, they did a forced duction, but and they said that they had no complications with hypoglobus or ophthalmos or things like that. But I think the biggest thing you have to look at is your cosmetic result. Because I find mm -hmm. if you open up ZF and ZM and you look at ZF, ZS, and ZM and all three are perfectly aligned, your cosmetic results should be good. That, that zygoma should be in the right spot. Yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely true. Are you guys getting scans after your ZMC repairs? You guys normally get a CT scan or what do you do? No, we don't. We don't. It's very infrequent that we do. Like one of our training staff who did come from an American program after his fellowship, he likes getting more post-op scans because he's more tech forward, likes doing like navigation and all that things, which I think is awesome. And I think we should probably do more of it. But I would say on average, we are not doing post-op for ZMCs. I think we more than often get get a post-op scan if it's a ZMC, like multi- That's good. Multi, yeah. multi point. I think if it was just ZM, we just get a pan. But sometimes if it's like, you know, you're plating multiple suture lines or if there's an orbit, especially obviously if there's an orbit component, you, you kind of have to get if, a post-op CT. Yep. Yep. Uh, actually, Oscar, before we get to recommendations, can I get a, can I get a shameless plug in? hundred percent. Yeah, go ahead. So you weren't at the Canadian meeting in Calgary when I debuted my research project CT Read? No, but I have a video on it. <laughs> so you have a video to the, uh, to the critical appraisal that happened afterwards? Yeah, but all, all that matters from that is the end result. Exactly. The end result. So for those that weren't there, <laughs> I think the majority of CAOMS members were there and listeners, but basically I presented my research. I got some very, I'm going to say constructive criticism afterwards. Yeah. It was like a chief resident talking to a junior resident. <laughs> <laughs> basically I got destroyed. Yeah. Uh, I, I got absolutely destroyed afterwards. But, but, um, but, yeah. but luckily, you know, things came full circle. I got an apology in front of the entire conference. I got sponsored. Yeah. It got presented at Amos. It won first prize. You know, everything works out in the end. Yeah. You just got to stick with it. But my shameless plug is, you know, CT Read is still going on, ctread.ca. But I want to plug the sequel. So, you know, CT Read was about facial bones and identifying facial fractures. Most staff and most senior residents, while they like the concept, they made their junior residents do it. They didn't really feel the need to do it themselves because they've been looking at CT scans forever. Mm -hmm. But the sequel is actually MRE. It's looking at MRIs of the TMJ. Now, Oscar, let's be, let's be real. You went through residency looking at the view report for all your MRI TMJs. Oh, like, and, and like we spoke before, we are a heavy TMJ program, right? Like we're doing 
30 yeah, or 30. Like if you don't know it, no one's going to know. Yeah, it. exactly. We're doing 35 joint replacements a year. Like it's a heavy program. And still you're going to jump to that. Let me see what the, let me see what the read says. Let me see what the yeah, report exactly. says. For sure. For sure. So if you're interested in learning how to read an MRI of the TMJ from scratch, uh, just head over to www.mrread.ca. The course is 100% free. It's interactive. You'll look at MRIs. They'll give you results really helps support the course. So that was just my shameless plug. I just want to get that out of the way. And honestly, it's not even just a shameless plug because it is a it is a useful tool. Like there's some shameless plugs that we may do in the future that are just shameless plugs that we're just saying to say, this one actually <laughs> is something that residents, if you are in residency or even staff and you're not that familiar with it, this is a good tool to use. So I would say 100%, you're okay with doing that shameless plug. Let's move on to recommendations. So recommendations is kind of just a fun end to the the podcast where we talk about things that aren't oral surgery related obviously right now in quarantine all of us are bored out of our minds trying to find things to do but also just in general you know there's more life than oral surgery both of us have tons of hobbies and other things Mm -hmm. we like so what what are you up to these days tell me about something that you're watching or reading that you recommend to others so this one is not going to be mind-blowing. It's probably going to be like the article we just talked about, actually. <laughs> it's going to be information that we already knew or that most people already knew. And so what I'm currently watching is I was late to the party. I am watching Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. So literally every person that I buy knew an HBO subscription it, or uh, I had HBO alternative going means? In. No, I had an HBO subscription going into this. Oh, nice. Um, the perks of doing private practice. (laughs) (laughs) But so, yeah, I was late to the party. Everyone told me that I knew, including you, you got to watch Game of Thrones. You got to watch Game of Thrones. Either I didn't watch it. I'd be like, ah, it's probably not going to be that good. Or I was busy during residence. So I never got a chance to. March 16th, pretty much our first day of lockdown, I started watching Game of Thrones. Obviously, I'm a bit of a binger. So I finished Game of Thrones. Final thoughts? See, now I'm, 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 I'm really against spoilers. But there's like an inherent rule when the TV show ended like three years ago, no, two years no. ago. You, you can talk about it. For yeah, sure. we can talk about it. We're fair game. Yeah, like we're yeah, always going to be anti-spoiler, but this is <laughs> well past. So if you're watching Game of Thrones right now or you haven't, you can click fast forward this part. But at this point, you should have watched it. No, exactly. And so like I'm the I, I hate when people ruin things, but you're right. This is three years, two years old. Like if you haven't watched it, you're probably not going to unless you really value our opinion that much, which probably not going to happen. But realistically... <laughs> It's unbelievable. It's amazing. So everyone who said it's going to blow your mind, it's so good, like everything about it. I like the character development. I like the fact that they actually, I like the dialogue between characters. I like the fact that they're not scared to kill off a main well, character that's what it is. out of nowhere, right? Like now, now people you get do it, it all the time, but at the time but, when Game of Thrones did it, when no. Sean Bean dies at the end of uh, end of season one, spoiler alert, I, all of us were like, yeah, but he's just going to like come back somehow. No, and he I never does ever. Honestly, like I was left with my mouth open. I'm like, what happened? You get attached to a character and then they're dead. Yeah. Like, like uh, I was I was rattled, to be honest, for the first couple of times that happened. But that's what made me really love the show. I will say I didn't love the end. Well, I, I think the common consensus of Game of Thrones is starts off slow. You have to push through season one just to get to know all the characters and all the names. Probably watch it with subtitles. That'll help. Then yep. from season two to season five, it's pretty much like one of the best shows you've ever seen. Yep. And then yep. starting from season six onwards, it starts getting really bad. Yeah, yeah. And, and and I would say I was still okay with the last two, but the last three episodes, I really was annoyed. Like I was like, you build up this, this so much and you're going to end it this way. It just left a sour taste. That being said, I still think you should invest the time in watching to it. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's been my main thing right now. And then other than that, trying to just 
I don't know how it is for you, but I live in a condo still. So trying to get outside and run every once in a while, just so I don't lose my mind because you are stuck indoors for so often, right? Yeah, exactly. What have you been up to other than residency and, and getting ready for things? Yeah. So for me, did you watch Breaking Bad? I did. Yeah. Okay. So Breaking Bad considered one of the greatest shows ever. I've always yep. been surprised that no one talks about Better Call Saul, which is pretty yeah, never- much the spinoff. Have you seen Better Call Saul? I've never seen it. No. So this, this is it. I think majority of Breaking Bad fans are obsessed with Breaking Bad, yet have never seen Better Call Saul. So it's a spinoff. Most spinoffs are terrible. But this is done by the exact same creators and writers of Breaking Bad. So when you watch the show, yeah. it's literally identical in music, setting, style, pace, characters, everything. I'd say if you don't want to invest a lot of time, one thing you can do is just skip the first few seasons. Because yeah. the first few scenes are more about how he becomes who he is as uh, Saul Goodman, the lawyer. But yeah. now, it, like the most recent season, season five, is pretty much now it's all about like the drug cartel. And it's all the same characters from Breaking Bad, like Gustavo Fring, oh. uh, even the DEA, DEA agents uh, make an appearance. Was disappointed in the way season five ended. I just finished it, actually. But I'm, I've always been surprised. People are obsessed with Breaking Bad and never watched Better Call Saul because, you know, Game of Thrones has like a spinoff in the works and everyone's going to watch that spinoff. Even though everyone hated the ending, they're all going to watch that spinoff. That's so true. And, and you are right because, yeah, I was a huge fan of Breaking Bad and I didn't even ever think about watching Better Call Saul. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. for people that like Breaking Bad, I would definitely check that out. All right. That's it for episode one of the Teeth and Titanium podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Please feel free to reach out to us if you have any topics you think would be great for a journal club or recommendations, or even for the resident reminder section, if you're a resident, you want to learn about a specific topic, we definitely want to involve the listeners. That's it for this month. And we'll be back next month with a brand new episode. 